0: This is Space 101.1, KMGP-LPFM, Magnuson Park, Seattle.
1: That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the S.S. Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell.
0: Good evening and welcome to another live episode of Cascade of History, live from historic Magnuson Park, the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station on the shores of Lake Washington in northeast seattle and reaching our audience all around the old oregon country washington oregon idaho british columbia thanks for joining us Uh, we're here at space 101.1 fm we're one of the uh, few live shows on sunday night Um, coming up after this show will be uh, jay's radio hour Jay's got a bunch of stuff planned. He's got some uh, lost Russian record from the turn of the century, a British dance band, Italian violin virtuoso, plus plenty of American jazz, blues, hillbilly, and gospel from the 20s to the 40s. It's this cool little live programming block on Sunday nights. Not many radio stations can claim that here in in the Northwest or pretty much anywhere, for that matter. Uh, I am Felix Benel. I'm the producer and host of the show. We've got a great uh, lineup for you tonight. Uh, A little bit later on, we are going to hear the next installment. Well, it's actually the first installment. In another one of these vintage recordings from this series called Their Name Was Courage. It's a very uh, dated series. Sometimes it sounds almost like um, something from Firesign Theater. If you're not paying too close attention, it reminds me a little bit of high school madness. But this is an episode called Blackie of Natchez Valley, a heartwarming tale of a boy and his ox. We'll get about three or four minutes into that story. We'll, we'll stretch it out over, you know, as we always do, stretch it out over the next three or four weeks to make the most of this uh, old Gloria Chandler thing produced back in 1951. Uh, and uh, so we'll we'll get to Blackie of Natchez Valley a bit later on in the show, and then uh, our roving correspondent Ken Zick is out there on this rainy, windy, windswept night, uh, probably very much like the night that was uh, November twelfth, eighteen fifty one, one hundred and seventy two years one hundred and seventy two years ago, because this time one hundred and seventy two years ago was the eve of when. The group of settlers from Illinois landed out at what's now Alki Beach in West Seattle. The Denny Party, there's a monument out there, I think, in the dark. We're in, Ken's out there looking for it. He's going to call in. We're going to talk to him about what the uh, kind of give paint a uh, word picture of how things look out there at the uh, place where the city of Seattle was born 172 years ago tomorrow. Now that means that we're only 28 years away from the Seattle Bicentennial. So mark that on your calendars now. But we'll talk to Ken a little bit later on. But before all that, we have a very special guest joining us by phone. I'm going to see if I can get him on the line right now. Let's see if we got him. We press this button, I press that button, and I press that button. And Eric Eulis, can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Oh, there, now can you hear me, Eric?
2: I, I got you, yeah. There we
0: go. I. I, I, I hadn't... It's I always it's a, it's a new experience every time I do this show because there's there's literally six buttons to press and a slider to slide up and I didn't slide the slider that time in case anyone's keeping score so well it's it's DB Cooper season in the Northwest and when that time comes around you know Thanksgiving Thanksgiving eve and everything I always think about the work you've been doing um I think you and I first talked a couple of years ago on the around the 50th anniversary of of uh, the this famous skyjacking back in 1971 but I've noticed I was talking to people you know people keep moving here to the northwest and there people are younger than me probably younger than you and they mm-hmm. they have some idea who DB Cooper is but they really don't know the story so what i thought we would do tonight is talk a little bit about the basics since it's it's such a big part of northwest mythology i was talking to you before the show began a little bit how in my family you know we i'm i'm a little bit too too old, a little bit too young to actually remember the actual event but my older siblings and stuff watched all the stuff happening on tv and it was you know something we talked about every Thanksgiving back in the '70s and the '80s, and still to this day. So, um, for those who don't know anything about it, what what is the what is the story of DB Cooper?
2: Okay, the uh, the summary version of it uh, is uh, goes as follows. And I like to start out by saying this is real. This really happened. <laughs> uh, so it was uh, Thanksgiving Eve, November twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one. Uh, a gentleman showed up at the Portland International Airport Northwest Orient Airlines ticket counter and purchased a one-way ticket from Portland to Seattle. He gave the name Dan Cooper. Uh, this was 1971. He did not need to provide any, uh, any identification. <laughs> so he gave the name Dan Cooper. Uh, normally, this would be a 36-minute flight. However, this night was different. This day was different. Uh, within the hour, as the jet was taxiing toward the runway uh, he turned around and handed one of the flight attendants a note which uh, said that he had a bomb and requested that she come and sit next to him on the jet of course she complied he opened his attache case and showed her what appeared to be a bomb and at that point issued a several demands, asked her to write these down, and in effect, the demands amounted to he wants $200,000 in cash, he wants uh, four parachutes, which included two front parachutes and two back parachutes, and he wanted the jet to be refueled. Once the jet lands in Seattle, they want the fuel truck ready. And he wants all of this in place by 5 p.m. <laughs> uh, and this and this was all happening just as the jet was literally rolling down the runway at PDX about three o'clock in the afternoon. Wow! Um, now the the jet obviously uh, flew up to Seattle. He would not let the jet land until everything was staged at SeaTac. and they were a little bit late. They got uh, they were. The jet finally landed at SeaTac at 540. So it was about 40 minutes behind schedule. The first thing he did is had the flight attendant, one of the flight attendants, retrieve the $200,000 in cash, uh, which he brought on board the jet. And at that point, he let the 35 passengers go, as well as two of the three flight attendants. Uh, Then he had the flight attendant bring on the four parachutes, And the jet was refueled, and they were actually on the ground for a couple of hours in Seattle, uh, much to his consternation, (laughs) um, before the jet took off uh, for what he initially requested as Mexico nonstop. He didn't want to land anywhere in the United States. Uh, However, the pilot explained to him that they could not fly that distance nonstop in part because Cooper had some additional very specific demands that uh, involved uh, the jet not flying over 10,000 feet in, in, uh, in altitude. The jet, he wanted the jet to remain unpressurized. He wanted the landing gear to remain down. He wanted the flaps down at a very specific 15-degree flap setting, which is interesting and notable, of course. And uh, very surprisingly, he wanted the back air stairs deployed upon takeoff. In other words, literally dragging on the ground <laughs> as the jet was taking off. Yep. Now, for those who don't know, this was a Boeing 727. You don't see many of those nowadays, but the Boeing 7 the Boeing 727 had these this uh, back air stairs apparatus that would deploy from the back bottom of the fuselage. Um, so of course they couldn't make it to mexico city flying dirty like that a very drag heavy configuration ultimately db cooper agreed to let them fly to reno nevada ostensibly to refuel to continue to flight to mexico uh in about 36 minutes after taking off as the jet was somewhere near vancouver washington approaching the portland area the pilots experienced what they call a pressure bump Uh, which uh, we later learned uh, occurred when D.B. Cooper, walking down those back air stairs, uh, when he jumped off of the back air stairs as the jet was traveling at about 200 miles an hour and 10,000 feet, the back air stairs sprung back up, kind of like a diving board, into the back bottom of the fuselage and created that popping sensation in the pilot's ears.
3: Um,
2: The jet, they, they suspected he had jumped, but they weren't sure uh and so they just lumbered along at a very slow speed all the way to reno and eventually once the jet landed in reno they couldn't get his attention and uh finally the pilot walked back there realized nobody was there anymore the authorities boarded the jet and uh there you go uh db cooper uh this this individual this unknown individual uh jumped somewhere near vancouver washington never to be seen or heard from again uh one final thing i will say is that officially as of this date nearly 52 years later uh they don't know how he got to the airport they don't know where he came from they don't know his real name and they don't know whether he lived or died and i should say uh, for a point of some clarification for people um Shortly after the skyjacking occurred, within a matter of hours, the media, of course, reported on it, and one of the reporters erroneously uh, reported his name as D.B. Cooper, not Dan Cooper, again, the name that he gave the uh, the gate agent, and of course, the media and authorities realized very quickly thereafter that, no, it wasn't D.B. Cooper, it was Dan Cooper, however, the name db cooper stuck i like to say just because it's just the cooler sounding name yeah, apparently. exactly and uh, <laughs> and there you go this is a very real mystery that's db cooper
0: well there's no mystery who you are you're eric Eulis and you're joining us live on cascade of history tonight on space 101.1 fm and that was this boy if i was your instructor in a class about giving the db cooper summary i'd give you an a plus you, you, you pass with flying colors that was that was awesome
2: um. Well, wonderful. I've, I've done it a few times. So.
0: <laughs> now, how old are you, if I might ask?
2: I'm 57 years old. Okay. So I was five years old at the time of the skyjacking, uh, living in uh, Washington D.C. area as a as a child. Uh, like you, I don't remember the the skyjacking occurring at the time it it happened. Uh, however, I happened to start kindergarten about six weeks before the skyjacking, and I do remember my very first day of kindergarten. So I, I do have a, a point of reference. I can appreciate how long fifty-two years is.
0: And I remember my third birthday, which was a couple of months before. So yeah. Um, so let's see. So what was when did you first uh, get interested in in this whole DB Cooper mystery?
2: Well, I'm I'm not exactly sure. I will say this that as a as a boy, I was always interested in aviation, and um, and obviously this case involves an airliner. So I suspect that that had something to do with it. I I think I probably first heard about the case in 1978. Uh, Leonard Nimoy of a Star Trek fame oh,
3: yeah. posted,
2: a, posted a show called In Search Of, and they had an episode about D.B. Cooper. So it, it, it may well have been when that show aired. And, of course, I had a passing interest over the years. Occasionally things would pop up in the media. Uh, and the mystery endured, of course. Uh, but it was really about 12, 13, 14 years ago that, for whatever reason, this this idea crossed my mind that, hmm, this is still a mystery. Maybe <laughs> I can solve it. Yeah.
0: All right. Before we get to that, I want to, let's have a couple-minute clip here. This is from the CBS Television News uh, with Walter Cronkite the day after the hijacking. This is uh, from... November 25th, 1971. Let's give a listen to this little vintage audio clip right here.
4: When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. Bill Curtis reports. Thirty-six passengers got off the jetliner in Seattle last night, left aboard four crew members and the hijacker, dressed in a business suit demanding $200,000 and carrying a plane briefcase, which he told the crew held explosives. With the full ransom collected from Seattle banks and four parachutes aboard, the plane headed for Reno. It took three and a half hours, slow for a jet, but the hijacker had given detailed flight instructions. The rear stairwell was open all the way, it arrived at Reno in shreds. The crew, here being debriefed by the FBI, was told to fly low over Oregon's flatlands with the flaps down. The speed dropped to 200 miles per hour. Somewhere, the hijacker parachuted away with the money. The crew had little to say. Oh,
5: uh, we
4: gave the information to the authorities, and, uh, we just don't want to discuss it any further. Have you been told by the FBI not to discuss? No, they handle their investigation, and uh,
5: my company would rather
4: have it released through them. Tina, were you with the, with the rest of the crew during during the the flight after you left the ground the last time? Yes, I went up to the cockpit. None of Where you were within sight of the hijacker, right? We already talked about it, and the captain, you know. Still oh, uh, how did you surmise that he was not on the plane when he landed in Reno? Well, a search was made of the plane immediately uh, after landing. As we understood it, he could have gotten off as the plane taxied before it came up here. How did the crew know he wasn't on when it touched ground? The crew couldn't know that, but we
5: had the airport covered. Are the authorities
4: now searching for the mountains? Snow covers the mountains in northern California and Nevada, a hostile terrain for any parachute drop, especially at night. Police believe he left the 727 in the flatlands of Oregon or Washington, but they are still looking in four states, even around the airport. Authorities began their search here, thinking the hijacker may have jumped off at the end of the runway as the plane touched down. But the problem is more complex. A daring parachute escape from a flying 727 somewhere between Reno and Seattle, Washington. Bill Curtis, CBS News, Reno, Nevada.
5: Bill
0: Curtis has such a great voice. He makes any story sound like it's some deep, universal mystery that's never going to be solved. (laughs) He's really the
2: ideal person to have been reporting on it uh, in in retrospect, you know, now that we have 52 years that have passed by. Isn't
0: that cool? Yeah. So, okay. And I always, you know, I've talked to FBI guys about this, and, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, D.B. Cooper's a dirty, rotten criminal, and, you know, I want to see him brought to justice and everything. And I I just want to get that out of the way because. He's so much a part of the mythology now, almost like not quite a cartoon character, but he's almost like this sort of so much time has passed and no one no one was injured in in this whole thing. I I laugh about it and I get all excited about it. I just I I don't know if I need to apologize for that, but I want to at least point that out. But so before we heard that clip from CBS there, you were talking about when you first got into trying to solve the mystery. And what was what was the first step you took to to kind of further research what had already been done or what 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 the universe of information was that was out there?
2: Uh, the, really, the first step for me was just uh, digging into the evidence as we knew it. Um, my background is uh, is a little unique. Uh, played professional blackjack as a card counter for many years. So if you're <laughs> familiar with the movie 21, uh, you know, with uh, the MIT guys going to Vegas, that, that kind of thing. Got it. Okay. And while While that seems to be completely disjointed and have nothing to do with D.B. Cooper, it actually played a big part in just shaping who I am and the way I think about things and the way I approach things. In other words, very logical, very math-based, okay. science-based, not prone. Given, I'm not given to conspiracy very easily, that type of thing. So I figured, you know, let's just take a look at the evidence uh, as best as we understand and see what I could come up with rationally. And fortunately, uh, not too many years later after that, through a Freedom of Information Act request, the FBI was actually required to start releasing original case files. Thus far, they've released about 35,000 pages, going all the way back to the night of the skyjacking. There's still many more to be released. Now, of course, they're very heavily redacted, and some of these things are are very worthless, but, but there are a lot of diamonds in there as well. So the benefit of that is it really gave me the opportunity to see what the authorities were working with all along. And I also had the benefits of realizing the man was never caught, never found. I mean, you know, there were, there's, those, there's new metrics, I guess, to apply as far as that goes. But I think that to answer your question directly, that's where it initially started for me was trying to dig into the facts and the evidence as far as we knew. All
0: right, well, first of all, n- remind me to never play cards with you. That's good to know. Um, and uh, in case you're just joining us, we're talking to Eric Uless, D.B. Cooper expert here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Um, so in those files and that stuff you're able to start digging through, wh- wh- I mean, what was the first, do you remember the first piece of evidence that made you sort of say, wait a minute, this, I've never heard this before, and this makes me kind of think that they missed something here or there's some different angle that hadn't been explored?
2: Well, it didn't take long for me to suspect that there was a problem with the with the flight path. And it's a little complicated, and I won't get in the weeds too much with it. But in effect, a couple of days after the skyjacking took place, the United States Air Force presented the FBI with what they believed was an accurate uh, uh, stenciling out on a map of the the path that the jet took which of course is the first thing to do when you try trying to figure out where the guy may have landed and uh, so apparently somebody had to crunch data and all these kind of things to come up with the flight path again this is 1971 it's not 2023 where you can you know press replay and it you know a nice map a line is drawn on a map it was not nearly as precise as it is today Yeah, and um, <clears throat> I, I suspected that Something was just the skew there, in part because in 1980, some eight years after the skyjacking, a portion of D.B. Cooper's ransom actually was found, $6,000 worth in the form of three rotted bundles of $20 bills. Here's the problem, though. Where it was found was buried in the sand along the Columbia River, near the Columbia River in Vancouver, Washington at a location called Tina Bar, Tina spelled T E N A. And it was about fifteen to twenty miles from the FBI's drop zone as the crow flies. And there was no there was no river or or natural way for that money to have arrived and, and got buried on, on Tina Bar. So it got me thinking well nothing has ever been found along the flight path as the fbi understand it understands it to ever indicate that the man was ever there at any point and to the contrary the one solid piece of evidence that has been found was found nowhere where it should have been found yeah so it got me thinking perhaps there was something slightly askew or something off with that and it's been a matter of quite a bit of controversy uh, among people that have studied this case but i still firmly believe that uh in in effect i think what happened is that you know we had three military chase jets following the airliner and i think that when the united states air force was tasked with going crunching data and penciling out the flight path i actually think that they erroneously worked with uh radar data that was being provided by one of the military chase jets and not the airliner itself okay uh which was slightly off to the side by uh you know, a little bit. And I think that that explains kind of what happened there. But uh, yeah, that's probably the first thing that I really started to suspect is just wrong.
0: Yeah, because I mean, the short version of that is like it essentially means that the if, if the theory being that the money washed down a river and into the Columbia and then made it to Tina Bar, that they had it wrong. They, the The actual flight path was one river valley Farther east than they imagined, because it meant that it would have deposited into a particular river that would have put it potentially put it there in Vancouver rather than, in, if it had been where they thought it was, it would have been farther down down the Columbia River. That's kind of actually, the rough version. Or did I got that wrong?
2: Yeah, actually, that's that's not even quite accurate. Okay. Uh, if if DB Cooper landed where they think he landed, the only possible way that it could have ended up in the Columbia River was through the by way of the Lewis River. Okay. The Lewis River actually joins up with the Columbia river, but eight miles downstream from Tina bar. So it's physically impossible for the money to go upstream there. Uh, so that's, that's the problem as far as that goes. And even if you account for, for example, landing in the Washougal area and ending up in the river basin there and somehow drifting down the river for what would end up being 15 to 20 miles, uh, Later, scientific evidence has proved that that's also not very feasible. Um, specifically, there were some diatoms, these things called diatoms, that were discovered on some of the money recently. This was only within the last few years. Uh, so it does appear that the money was exposed to the Columbia River. However, it was in the springtime, not in the winter time when the, when the uh, jump took place. So I think that that's actually indicative of when the money was retrieved, because I do believe D.B. Cooper survived and actually retrieved the money during the flood of 1972, which occurred in June of 72. Um, And at the same point, of course, there's no possible way the money would have, D.B. Cooper would have, for example, landed in the Columbia River or some such place, because if that had happened, there would be winter diatoms. There would be evidence uh, of that on the bills okay. that just simply doesn't exist. That's that's the cold hard science. I mean, okay. this is uh, there's just no way to overlook that.
0: I want to ask about that uh, a little bit more about your theory and about the work you've done searching along Tina Bar. Um, one thing about the parachutes, I was reading the you know the National Archives has made available this. I think it's 106 pages of the FBI report that has some of the you know the early interviews with the crew members and that sort of thing. Um, and I was reading about the you know he's asking for. What, two, two chest parachutes and two back parachutes or something? Or what, what's, the, what's the thinking that—why would he ask for those four parachutes, two of one specific kind, two of another specific kind?
2: Well, normally, when a skydiver jumps, they have a, a main parachute, which is on their back, and then they have a reserve, which is attached, clipped to the main, but that resides on their front. Okay. Now, uh, so they pair together— This situation was unique because the parachutes, the two reserves and the two mains, came from two different sources. And as it worked out, the two main parachutes that were delivered were what are called emergency rigs. And emergency rigs are not designed to be coupled with a reserve parachute. Emergency rigs are rigs where if they don't work, you're just dead. That's all there is (laughs) to it. Now, having said that, they are extremely durable. Uh, you could probably be flying at 500 miles an hour and deploy it, and it would survive. So there's no reason to think that they didn't, uh, they, they didn't function properly. Now, as to why he ordered two sets of parachutes, the authorities speculated that perhaps he was going to have one of the crew members jump with him. Oh, geez. Uh, And maybe his thinking, maybe D.B. Cooper's thinking was that'll assure that the parachutes are functional. Uh, if they think that I'm jumping with one of the crew members, uh, that may be part of his rationale. Another another uh, part of his rationale may have been he may have realized from the be- very beginning that he was going to have to cannibalize the shroud line out of one of those parachutes, which he ended up doing. It took about 100 feet of shroud line out of one of these uh, parachutes using a pocket knife. He used the shroud line to tie everything to his person, the money bag, and presumably the briefcase, and everything that went with him off the jet.
3: Wow! So
2: that's also possible that this was just sort of uh, you know he, he just wanted four parachutes to work with, uh, realizing one of them was going to be cannibalized, and then he had somewhat of a selection as far as the, the others go. I'm not really sure. Yeah. And did
0: he leave? did he actually take two of the parachutes with him and leave behind two, or what did he leave behind?
2: Yes, this and this is very interesting. Uh, as, it, as it worked out, uh, the the two reserve parachutes came from the old Issaquah Skyport, <laughs> which uh, used to be in Issaquah where there's now a load. Yeah, yeah, the Issaquah's <laughs> a changed a lot country.
0: in the last 52 years. <laughs>
2: that's right. Uh, that's where it was. It was a grass runway. Uh, but that's where it came, the two reserves came from. And the gentleman, a guy named Lynn Emrick, who picked out the two reserve parachutes, pretty hastily and handed them over to a washington state patrol officer to drive down to uh, uh to to C-TAC, uh accidentally picked up a reserve that was a dummy reserve it wasn't <laughs> functional it was used for training purposes on the ground and then the other one was perfectly functional uh and then the two back emergency parachutes came from another gentleman in kent uh, so when D.B. Cooper jumped, he, of course, used one of the back parachutes, which was perfectly functional, and and then he also left with the dummy reserve, the one reserve that was didn't work. He, huh. he actually left with that. Uh, there's been a lot of theories and speculation around that. I believe that the reason he took that is I believe he actually used that dummy reserve, which was quite soft to the touch because quite a bit of the interior of it had been removed because, again, it was a training parachute. Uh, I believe that he used that parachute to actually house some of the cash. Uh, I think he essentially divided the cash up between the money bag and that dummy reserve parachute. And I think that that explains why he took the dummy reserve parachute, because not only could he, there was no way to attach it. There's no ability to attach it to the um, emergency rig that he had on his back. Uh, so obviously there's no value in it from that perspective, but it's just an odd thing to take. So that yeah. that makes sense to me. So yes, he did leave two of the parachutes, one main and one reserve, on the jet, and those were recovered in Portland, yeah, or rather I, in Reno. In Reno,
0: I got to see those in person at the uh, Washington State History Museum a couple of years ago. I think they're in their permanent collection now. It's pretty cool. At least, yeah. or at least one of maybe the main ones. When one I got to see the big, the big green military style one, I think that was what yeah. I was looking at. Yeah. That's correct, yes. Um, Okay, so your theory is that he survived the jump, and then when you went back to search at Tina Bar, was that just a couple of years ago the first time you did that, or when did you first start searching Tina Bar, and what were you looking for?
2: Um, Well, I'll say that um, Tina Bar, for those who are not familiar with it, that area is in effect on an island, It's surrounded by Columbia River on one side, Lake River on the other side, it's Vancouver Lake on the other side. So it it, it is, in in actuality, it's a peninsula, but in effect, it's an island. So uh, it's the reason why that's important is because there's simply no way to walk to Tina Bar without walking through downtown Vancouver. And it's just illogical to think that D.B. Cooper would have walked through downtown Vancouver, eight miles up the Tina Bar, buried the cash, turned back around and walked back to to Vancouver. So I have long uh, speculated that he probably landed quite near where the money was actually found, probably within a mile or mile and a half. So what I've been trying to find is anything related to his jump, specifically the parachute. That parachute he jumped with was pretty heavy, pretty bulky, not easy to walk with once he's landed on the ground. And of course, he didn't own the parachute. So there's really no reason to keep it. So I think it's reasonable to deduce that he would have immediately stashed that parachute somewhere in some blackberry bushes or something of that nature in the area. And that's what my uh, recent searching in particular has centered, centered on one particular heavily wooded trench that's about three quarters of a mile long that's within a mile of Tina Bar, uh, where the money was found and is just covered with uh, blackberry bushes and the like.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's 52 years. That's a long time in terms of vegetation. And s- Imagine, has the river course changed enough where the sediment patterns have changed in the rivers? You said there was a flood in 72?
2: There was a flood in 72, but it didn't change anything much as far as the overall. It, it doesn't impact where this parachute would be found. Now, the spot where the money was found, at the time the money was found in 1980, uh, it was about 40 to 50 feet from the water's edge at an elevation of eight to nine feet above the level of the Columbia River under normal conditions. Nowadays, that spot is actually in the water.
0: I'll be darned, (laughs) okay.
2: Yeah, it's, it's typically about 10 feet offshore and the water's maybe uh, six inches deep. Uh, there's been an enormous amount of erosion that has completely reshaped that beach. It's unrecognizable nowadays. Okay. Nowadays, But, uh, yeah, a lot has changed as far as where the money was found, but there's been uh, virtually no impact in terms of the areas that I'm looking at, which are a little further inland.
0: Now, in, in your searching, have you found other things not related to D.B. Cooper that are actually also kind of interesting or valuable?
2: <laughs> well, uh I did do a search, and this was heavily reported about a week, uh, week and a half ago. We were started a search uh, myself and a small crew of this trench that that I actually consider sort of target zero. This is a spot that you know I think is a, a very interesting place in my mind. Um, and we got about 15% the way through, and on the first day there we actually did find one of the searchers found a sheet, a white sheet, queen-size flat sheet, which at first blush seemed insignificant, but uh, it was found in a place that is very odd. It's it's hard to get to. It's not the kind of thing that you can blow there in the wind just given the sticker bushes and everything else. Mm -hmm. But what was very notable and interesting is that I determined that the sheet was purchased at a Kmart store uh, between 1964 and 1967. So (laughs) that is at least 56 years old. So the timing actually dates before uh, D.B. Cooper's jump. And it's important to note that there were no Kmart stores in Portland or Vancouver in 1964 through 1967. So that sheet was purchased somewhere else and transported there. Why this is important, uh, is comes down to a couple of things. First of all, the flight attendant, the primary witness flight attendant, did report seeing D.B. Cooper wrap the ransom or attempt to wrap the ransom in a quote-unquote white material.
3: Huh.
2: Now, was this the sheet or the par- one of the parachutes? We just don't know. It's just a white material. She just happened to observe that in
5: passing.
2: So that, it's interesting from that perspective. The other thing is that D.B. Cooper, in addition to carrying this attache case on board the jet, also had a paper bag, a mystery paper bag that was about 14 inches wide, 12 inches tall, and 4 inches deep. And it's always been a mystery uh, what the purpose of that bag was and what was in the bag, because presumably there was something in the bag, but nobody saw what was in the bag. So could it have been a sheet? Could it have been something else? We don't know. Presumably, whatever was in the bag was too large to simply put in his raincoat pocket. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, uh,
2: so for those reasons alone, I think uh, prudence dictates that uh, the sheep be analyzed to see if perhaps there's some sort of possible relationship to the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, That's in cool. part because of uh, not only the age and, and the witness testimony, as I re- referenced, but also where it was found. It's, it's precisely where I would expect to find
0: something i like the idea of imagining that fbi sketch character at a kmart for the blue light special when the sheets are going on sale and in fact the db cooper is a thrifty guy i like that that's that's pretty cool that's that's a new <laughs> well I tell,
2: you, I, I tell you what one of the things that the really the only piece of evidence he left on board the jet was a skinny black clip on tie which itself was retrieved at uh, reno and it was a, a tie from J.C. Penney. It cost a buck and a half, a dollar and a half at the time that it was purchased new. So, and the tie itself was purchased, uh, I, I pegged the date, of, uh, right around Christmas 1964 is when the tie was purchased.
0: Oh, oh so the tie was that old. That was, so it was already yeah. out of date. Okay, yeah, it's a skinny. I've seen photographs of that of that skinny J.C. Penney tie before. That's that's great. Okay, and and so I mean, a couple minutes left here. I want to ask you a couple questions. So um, so you have the search that's underway. They've done, and we've searched a few times there their Tina bar. and I like the idea of I like the idea of actually physically searching for stuff and digging and combing through the brush and everything versus all the um it's kind of it's slacked off a lot in recent years just because I think so many years have passed now, but for a while, there it seems like there was, you know there was my uncle was DB Cooper, my father was DB Cooper, I was DB cooper was happening every year around this time. Um, Have you ever sort of honed in on one particular, you know, quote-unquote suspect or person of interest or person who you think truly was D.B. Cooper?
2: I don't know with certainty who D.B. Cooper was. That said, uh, the the tie, the skinny black clip-on tie that I referenced, has been analyzed in recent years using, of course, state-of-the-art technology, scanning electron microscope, that type of thing. Interestingly, there have been uh, a lot of very unique particles found on the tie that are consistent with a specialty metals manufacturer. There is commercially pure titanium, alloy titanium, stainless steel, aluminum, rare earth elements, things Mm. of that nature that were consistent with the aerospace sector in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, One thing I did about a year ago was identify three very specific particles of a titanium and antimony alloy that appear to correlate with a U.S. patent that was granted to a Boeing subcontractor called RemCrew Titanium. RemCrew Titanium provided uh, Boeing their specialty metals for not only their commercial, but their military aircraft as well. They are located or headquartered in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. Now, through a significant amount of research and so forth there is one gentleman in particular passed away in 2002 a gentleman named Vince Peterson that is a person of particular interest but to be fair uh, to Mr. Peterson who is no longer alive and can speak for himself uh, I I haven't concluded one way or the other whether the man was D.B. Cooper or not so uh, I am doing my level best to access uh, the the tie which is an fbi custody to try and pull some dna off it and and continue to other analyze other particles and things to see if, if we can come to some sort of resolution with respect to that
0: and i know the fbi officially closed the case i think it's three or four years ago now um 2016 actually
2: is it so that long ago now? now okay yeah. Boy,
0: I, t- I guess the pandemic not counting the pandemic <laughs>
5: <laughs> yes, <Yeah, yeah. laughs>
0: all that weird compressed and elongated time that we all recently lived through. Um, okay, so it's 2016, so seven years ago. Do they? I mean, I've, I think I, as a member of the media, I've reached out to try to talk to different FBI people in since that case was closed and not had much luck. Do they view people like you as a nuisance, or are they sort of? I mean, they, I mean, what what's the what do you think the current FBI thinks of any efforts like yours or anyone's to uh, to look into trying to solve the, the DB Cooper case?
2: Yeah, honestly, I think they're just done with it. They're no longer interested in working with anybody. Uh, I actually filed suit in federal court in March of this year to get access to the tie for myself and a DNA specialist because I identified a specific part of the tie that may well hold a complete DNA profile for D.B. Cooper. Hmm. Uh, The tie is is in fbi possession of course in fbi in uh, washington dc at the fbi headquarters i actually saw the tie with my own eyes in february uh, rather in october of 2021 so i know the tie is there Hmm. uh we're just looking for access uh in in the fbi headquarters for 10 or 15 minutes to swab it real quick and see if we can come up with a a dna profile but uh thus far the fbi has been unwilling to play ball we're waiting to hear from the judge (laughs) Uh, who's uh, got to issue some rulings with respect to some of this stuff? But uh, I'm, I'm trying, and it was, but it sure would be nice. That said, it sure would be nice if the FBI just said, you know what? Why not, Eric? Come, come, dive by with your DNA specialist. And let's see what you can come up with. Because we obviously couldn't come up with anything after 45 years.
0: Yeah, I, I sort of run. You know, part of me feels like if the case is never solved, it makes it it makes it permanently part of the mythology and becomes just sort of even even bigger over time. Even though you know the principals will have passed away and people like you and I will have passed away, this you know this story will still kind of have a life beyond beyond. Uh, just that day back in 1971, but then I also think like it would be really amazing to solve it too. Um, I know the, uh, when I did that 50th anniversary special a couple years ago, um, I kept searching and last fall at the Minnesota Historical Society, I, I was doing some research on an entirely different Northwest Airlines flight and they had this remote thing where I could sit at my computer and a guy sitting in Minnesota would thumb through this uh, folder of photographs and this picture went by of a 727 it was like wait a minute that tail number looks familiar and i t- quickly looked it up and yeah sure enough it was pictures there was three or four nice pictures from Bismarck North Dakota probably taken a year or two at least before the plane became infamous as part of the hijacking of this just like beauty shots of this 74 uh, the 727 um, that you know not like an earth-shattering revelation but it was pretty cool to stumble across those pictures and we we published them last year on the Cairo News Radio website but i i just like that stuff still gets teased out I love the work that you're doing. I'm, I really appreciate you coming and joining us on the show tonight to kind of give us an incredible kind of praises, uh abstract of the story there at the start and then to learn about the work you've been doing lately. It's I think it's great. I hope you keep doing it. Um, is there a place people can follow your work, or do you have a website or something where people can find out more about what how you, what you're doing?
2: Well, yeah, I do, and I actually got something better than that. that people may not realize that we actually have an annual event called CooperCon, uh, this is the fifth year of it, oh, right on. and uh, it oh. actually takes place in Seattle at the Museum of Flight this year, uh, next Friday. Oh, Friday, that's Friday, terrific. Friday, and
0: oh, that's yeah, great. So,
2: yeah, so if a person just Googles CooperCon or or go to cooperconevents.com, uh, that's, it's a really cool event. We actually have firsthand witnesses, a guy named Bill Mitchell, who was a passenger who sat right next to T.P. Cooper. He'll be on stage, uh, FBI, former FBI agent, special agent, Larry Carr, who headed up the Norjack investigation. Great. Uh, one of, one of the copycat skyjackers who tried the same thing a few months later, he'll be there. He got caught, obviously went to prison for many years, <laughs> but, uh, it's really a fascinating thing. And some of these artifacts, like including some of the money as well as the sheet that I found will, will actually be on hand as well. Nice. to observe. But yeah, CooperCon is coming up next week. Uh, Friday, oh, that's Saturday and Sunday. Great. So anybody who's really interested in it, you know, feel free to, feel free to check it out. Just Google CooperCon. Um, you pull it up.
0: Right on. So. We'll we'll put links on the Cascade of History of Facebook page too. Will there be any blackjack games going on in the lobby anywhere or?
2: <laughs> No, no, no. Those are those are days gone by. So
0: All right. Eric <laughs> Eulis, yeah. hey, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History and, and let's have you back again. I'd love to hear keep us updated if anything cool turns out and uh, people can meet you this coming weekend at CooperCon at the Museum of Flight.
2: That's correct. Looks, yeah. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go right to this Tom Bresh song, D.B. Cooper, Where Are You?, as we get ready for our next guest. We're going to try and track down Ken Zick out there, our roving correspondent, uh, trying to track down Seattle history from 172 years ago here on Space 101.1 FM with Cascade of History.
6: traveling, man. He rode on the Northwest flight. He asked for some money and $20 notes, and he just dropped clean out of sight. D.B. Cooper was a weary man. He was tired of the rut, you see. When a way came along to change it all, he jumped at the opportunity. D.B. Cooper, won't you please come back? We're looking for you high and low. Because we ain't polite in the middle of the night. D.B. Cooper, where did you go? Was D.B. Cooper a Robin hood, or was he just another thief in the night? Who took from the rich and gave it all to himself. Now, was that wrong, or was it right? D.B. Cooper never hurt no one, but he sure did blow some minds. And as the weeks and the days went rolling on by, he got harder and harder to find. D.B. Cooper, where are you now? Looking for you high and low. With your pleasant smile and your dropout style. D.B. Cooper, where did you go? this. D.B. Cooper wrote a letter to the man, said he was treated mighty fine. When it comes to things like hospitality, you sure can't beat that northwest line. D.B. Cooper, won't you please come back? We're looking for you high and low. Cause leaving ain't polite light in the middle of the night. D.B. Cooper, where did you go? Over. Where are you?
0: I love those songs that have the nice, long, slow fade-outs like that. Tom Brush, D.B. Cooper, where are you? Mr. Brush passed away a couple years ago. I got the chance to interview him about, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago. Very nice. He sang a little verse of the song on the phone for me and everything. All right, so this is Cascade of History, and you have uh, tuned here to Space 101.1 FM. It's Sunday night, so of course we're live in the studio the way we always are. Um, and that was great hearing from uh, Eric Eulis about CooperCon coming up this weekend at the Museum of Flight. And I will put stuff on the, um, oh, the old Cascade of History Facebook page, which I noticed there's some photos now that Ken Zick has posted of his visit to Spud Fish and Chips just moments ago on his way to the uh, Alki Monument. Ken's going to join us in just a second. Remember, coming up at 9 o'clock, live on Space One Hundred One Point One FM, it's Jay's radio hour. Jay's got this big truckload of uh, vintage, uh, not even vinyl, it's uh, whatever they used to make, with shellac or wax, whatever they made 78s out of. He's got a lost Russian record from the turn of the century, and I assume he means the turn of the 19th to the 20th century? I hope it's the 19th, I hope it's not a 78 from 20 years ago, 24 years ago. Uh, Let's see, British dance band, Italian violin, virtuoso, plus plenty of American jazz, blues, hillbilly, and gospel from the 20s to the 40s. That's Jay's Radio Hour coming up right after Cascade of History. So let's get Ken Zick here on the uh, Cascade of History news line here. Let's see if we got him on the line here. Ken Zick, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, that's great. So where are you right now? Give us the the 1020.
5: So I'm uh, standing on the, uh, I guess, the far west end of Alki Beach Park looking at the Seattle skyline, and I'm right next to the uh, monument for the uh, birthplace of Seattle, the oh. landing of the Denny
3: Park.
0: Excellent. So it's that's, that's November 12th right now, 2023, which means 172 years ago tomorrow, November 13th, 1851. It's essentially the birth of what eventually became the city of Seattle. But just Can you actually read? Is there a, is there a plaque that says stuff on the monument there?
5: Oh, my gosh. There are so many plaques. <laughs> 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 plaque can no, be
0: a problem sometimes, you know. Problem no, plaque. Thing?
5: <laughs> I'll post. I'll post some photos, but it's a it's a it's a pretty cool concrete monument with an obelisk at the top.
3: Okay.
0: And that,
5: and so the obelisk at the top says that this place uh, on November uh, on 13th of November 1851, they landed from the schooner exact Captain Folger and the little colony, which developed into the city of Seattle.
0: That's very cool. Yeah, that's and, a that's a great spot.
5: Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool, and then and then it's it's actually neat. Cause they have an original plaque from when. Um, the monument was put in in 26, when everyone marched over from Seattle, and it says, "From Plymouth Rock to Alki Point pioneers the rocky shores of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Uh, the above, sorry, I don't have a flashlight with me. <laughs> <laughs> the above uh, stone is brought from Plymouth Rock by the uh, first transcontinental motorized caravan, managed by James H. Brown and endorsed by the American Automobile Association. This tablet is furnished by the Club of Washington. And the unveiling ceremonies on September 1926 were participated in by officers and citizens of the city of Seattle, the county of King, and the state of Washington.
0: Very nice. And that's so, wait, so they dedicated that on November 13th, 1926?
5: Uh, this is November 4th, 1926 So we did just a little bit ahead of that Wait
0: a minute, so why weren't you on the show last week Talking about that plaque <laughs> Well, because we had McPherson
5: <laughs> We had to talk about McPherson So we got to catch
0: up So, now, uh, it, when, I, when I came into the studio It was rainy and windy outside Is it still rainy and windy right now Or is it just the it, does it rain back slacked off a bit
5: Oh, it is rainy and windy. Very, oh, okay, <laughs> very very much like the conditions when the party landed. See, that's
0: the very famous thing because there's that there used to be that um, diorama at Mohai Museum of History and Industry. I think I don't think it's on display currently. I could be wrong, but it was a uh, built in the made in the 1950s recreating that moment when all the settlers have come ashore. You know, and David Denny had been there for about 6 weeks since September 25th of 1851. He was supposed to build a cabin. He'd built the walls but not the roof. <laughs> And, you know, it's raining and the women all start crying because they realize they've given up their, you know, their homes in Illinois for this, you know, rolling the dice to try to like make a new life and create a new city on the West Coast and everything. And it's, you know, it it looks pretty bleak. And I love when the weather in mid November is just like it was in 1851. And that the, um, I don't know whether that is, whether that's, uh, is it chutzpah? Is it, um, is it, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Confidence? Is it hubris? What is it that lets them. Think that this is a place that's going to be a good place to live on that November day when the weather is so cruddy like that.
5: Uh, well, it, so- it sounds like they didn't think it was when they landed. If they were crying,
0: well, the women were crying. That's all it was, <laughs> that's the, that's the cliche. Who knows what really happened? I mean, all this stuff, you know, the, the, these, you know, the, these stories about early Seattle history, any early American city's history, it all glosses over, you know, the blood and the guts and the you know the the stuff about displacing the indigenous people and everything. That that story still not really properly fleshed out and told enough. But um, it's it's the, the even those it seems to me we're kind of in this we're kind of between between history right now because up until maybe I don't know ten or fifteen twenty years ago that Founders Day would get celebrated there'd be something at Mohai there'd be something something some kind of what something would happen on a civic level to note the fact that November thirteenth was here again I don't think anybody does that anymore I know they do. You know, the Mohai has exhibits about the Denny party arriving and it's the story is always more complex than just a bunch of white people coming from Illinois. But it sort of feels like, I don't know, I have this personal fantasy that there'd be this more um, robust commemoration of that day. Um Telling all the stories, not just the not just the Denny party, but the true stories of the indigenous people who were here and what what really happened, and you know the treaties that came along, and not to make people feel bad, but just to really have that kind of transparency and truth and reconciliation that I think makes everybody smarter and everybody better informed about what happened and you know what history really is, not just these sort of kind of oversimplified pageants of uh, of, of great white men doing great things. That makes me sound like a real downer, and I apologize for that. <laughs>
5: Well, I was going to say, it's nice that you served that up for me, because on uh, two of the other sides of the monument base, um, in uh, 2001, it looks like, for that, I'm going to butcher
0: this, sesquicentennial, C- I was deeply yeah. involved in that when I worked at Moha, yeah, for sure. Yeah,
5: yeah. so there's a there's a plaque on one side with uh, of McClellan who undertook the, uh, the uh, boat journey out here to Seattle, and then the other side, they've got a plaque uh, commemorating uh, Chief Seattle. Okay. From from the Duwamish and other Native peoples uh, who hope the Alki landing party survive the early years here, and they shared their space, their food, and their knowledge.
0: And it's it is kind of a mystery that they first would pick Alki, or they pronounced it Alki in those days. And Alki is means is the you know it's the Chinook jargon word that means by and by or eventually, because the settlers called their settlement New York, and then some wise guy said, yeah, New York eventually, you know, and someday kind of thing. So that's right. where that whole Alki, and they, 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 there's debates about whether to pronounce it Alki or Alki, because Alki is also a, you know, a nickname for an alcoholic. Anyway, Alki yep. is the, the pronunciation nowadays. But the fact it took them until February of 1852 to figure out that a better location was to the northeast there on the shores of Elliott Bay with deep water harbor and everything, the fact it took them that long to figure it out, I always wonder, like, why did it take so long to figure out that, Alki was better to be a beach and like a you know a neighborhood of, of an eventual city than right. the actual downtown place with a big port and all the piers and everything you need to make a city grow like that. So I, I don't know the answer to that.
5: Maybe maybe they were just tired of sailing, when so they found the first spot to land.
0: That's right. You know, and the and the exact because <laughs> yeah, you right, you mentioned in the plaque. They mentioned the schooner exact. That's why yeah. there's nobody nobody's ever been able to identify what the exact really looked like. There's no sketches <laughs> or photographs or anything of it. There's different um, there's different interpretations like that that. Diorama I was talking about that Mohai I think has in storage probably next to Bobo the gorilla, um, in the place where they store things that they don't know what to do with. Um, There's a painting of the exact. There's a mural that was a a guy named Thomas Wells, a really famous maritime artist, did the did the uh, backdrop of the mural, but it's all totally based on just speculation, I guess. And you know, it's because most of the other famous vessels in Pacific Northwest history either existed long enough to be photographed or properly documented, but I, I don't even know what ultimately happened to the exact, but it certainly was a big deal for the Danny party to come up from Portland yep. around and then up, what they say, up the sound or down the sound? Up the sound to, to what became Seattle. From, you know, when he went south through Puget Sound, it was called going up the sound. How was you stopped by Spud earlier, right? You went to the historic fish and chip spot out there. How was that?
5: I did. Oh, it was great. The uh, Fish is fantastic as ever, and the inside, like the inside's is like well kept up, but it looks like it hasn't changed since about 1992.
0: And you so, posted some pictures. They have some murals up on the wall there, don't they?
5: Yeah, they've got they've got a great collection both um, uh, you know, the entrance hallway, and then if you go up the stairs um, of just different notable historical things of West Seattle. So like the uh, what the Natatorium. Notor- oh, uh, at
0: Lincoln Lincoln Park. Yeah.
5: yeah, 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 yeah. So, a so whole bunch, whole bunch of stuff around around West Seattle, uh, Ferry Landing. All uh, you know, histo- historic uh, items of note uh, from the from the region, and it's some great like vintage pictures and stuff. It's like a little museum there.
0: What do they get for a family-sized tartar these days? Do you recall?
5: oh shoot i know. i I got one included with my fishing chip basket i didn't I didn't look right down okay but it was okay. but it was huge i can I can confirm it was huge though okay good.
3: Tartar.
0: <laughs> i think that's the that's i think it i think the official name is the family size charter still the best named condiment yeah. of any restaurant anywhere in the pacific Northwest uh now how many other hundreds of people are out there tonight commemorating the uh the hundred and seventy second anniversary the eve of the hundred and seventy second anniversary?
5: Well, so so I def- definitely have a I definitely have a uh, pretty steady parade of cars driving uh, okay. by to pay their respects, but not a lot of people stop. It. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's pro- probably weather wise. It kind of feels like it's, the whether to sit inside with a cup of hot cocoa or something, look out the window. Yeah,
0: and I haven't, I haven't done any Googling around, looking at calendars. I doubt there's any official commemorations of anything happening tomorrow, which is kind of a
5: bummer. But, you know, yeah.
0: I, I think it'll come back. I think some more balanced celebration or – see, you can't even use the word celebration because it's sort of – the arrival of, you know, the Denny party isn't necessarily good news for the people yep. already living. Anyway, it's very complex, but – um, I really appreciate you going out there on the in the weather to Alki, Alki, out there to the uh, on the eve of the arrival of the Denny Party. So no reenactment, we think, for 2023. Probably.
5: Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think there is. I'm sorry right. to say. We, uh, get, we know what. Let's do that next year.
0: Okay, that'll be the 173. Well, the, I mean, the really big deal. I think I joked about it last week and earlier on the show. The bicentennial is only 28 years from now. I mean, that's. Oh. I I plan to be alive for that. I mean, who knows? You know, you never know what will happen. But I would like to be alive to see the bicentennial of the city of Seattle. That would be pretty amazing.
5: That'd give us some time to recruit some other folks to
0: join. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get a we'll we'll put a set up a Facebook event, and start inviting people. You can you can express interest, like interested or not interested. And we'll start no. getting getting we'll start building building community around that event right now. That's a good idea. That's see I knew something good would come out of all this. That's the silver lining. So, all right, well, roving correspondent for Cascade of History, Ken Zick, Thanks for driving joining us on the Cascade of History Newsline tonight. Uh,
5: my pleasure anytime.
0: All right, we'll talk to you. Have a good night, Ken. Bye bye. Take care. Uh, of course, Kenzik, our roving correspondent out there at Alki Beach. Uh, that's a great place to go uh, any time of year. And uh, just got a couple minutes here to go uh, on the old... Uh, did I... You know what? I didn't get a chance to play the big episode of the show, did I? Whoops, I unplugged... No, I told out the... We're, we're switching over our gear here to play the uh, theme music here, outro, in just a moment. Um, this has been Cascade of History. We want to thank our guests tonight. Of course, Eric Uless, D.B. Cooper expert. And... Uh, do go to CooperCon, and we'll put stuff on the Facebook page. That sounds like, that's kind of tempting. I'm kind of tempted to make a trip down to CooperCon next, uh, next Friday night, but we'll see about that. And then uh, Ken Zick, our roving correspondent. and uh, Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to play our first installment of um, the, uh, what was that thing called, Blackie of Natchez Valley, the heartwarming tale of a boy and his ox. That was sort of like a long, hour-long tease for that. We'll have to get to that next week. Although I'm going to be off for the holiday next week, I think. So, sometime in December, I'll be back and we'll talk. Maybe we'll play a, a couple episodes of Blackie of Natchez Valley. I don't want to keep people waiting much longer. So, Jay's Radio Hour is coming up. This is Cascade of History on Space 101.1 um, FM. Go to our Facebook page, Cascade of History, like that. You'll get updates about stuff we're doing. We post information about other interesting history stuff going on all around the old Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. Uh, We've got a big holiday show in the works, all sorts of stuff coming up before the end of the year here on Space 101.1 FM. Stay tuned for Jay's Radio Hour, or uh, just uh, if you're listening on the podcast, uh, do whatever you're going to do after you're done listening to the podcast.
1: That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonell.